By now, you've probably seen ads about the water contamination at Camp Lejeune everywhere. People who got sick after drinking that toxic water are now able to seek repayment for their medical costs because of a new law, the PACT Act. What those other ads don't tell you is that because the PACT Act is a fresh law, it's important to find an attorney who understands the new claims forms. There is a limited time to file your Camp Lejeune claim, so you need a lawyer who can get it right the first time. The experienced team of attorneys at SickMarine.com is ready to file your claim. They will fight for you and they won't take no for an answer. Sign up at SickMarine.com. your host. Welcome. On this podcast, we talk about the journey of faith and where it intersects with religion, politics, and culture. This is episode 71. Well, on the day that I was putting this episode together, there was a news alert that popped up in my phone, and it was about the department store chain Kohl's. And I wanted to actually share this. I I wanted to get a kind of a deeper article about it. So I found something from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. um, And this is what it said about Kohl's. Kohl's is a target of an unsolicited purchase offer, raising questions about the future of one of Wisconsin's largest companies. An affiliate of activist hedge fund, Star Value LP, is offering $9 billion to buy the Menominee Falls-based department store chain. That's according to a Wall Street Journal report, which cited unnamed people familiar with the matter. A group led by Acacia Research Corporation, which New York-based Starboard Controls offered to buy Kohl's for $64 a share in cash Friday, according to these sources. Kohl's stock closed on Friday at $46.84 a share. Now, the phrase that you should focus on, the operative phrase, is hedge fund. Hedge funds, along with private equity firms, have an outsized role in the American economy. Some of your most favorite stores, stores that you may have shopped at, may have been at one time or another owned by a hedge fund or private equity firm. Some firms that actually no longer exist or are on the verge of extinction were also owned at one point, usually at the end of their life cycles, by a hedge fund or private equity firm. Stores like Shopco, Toys R Us, Payless Shoes, and Sears were all at one point owned by one of these firms. And most of those, all of all of those firms, only Sears is still in business and barely in business. Probably by the end of this year, Sears, along with its uh, stablemate uh, Kmart, will no longer exist. So the question you might be asking is, what's the big deal? I mean, stores go out of business all the time. That's basically the way that things work. That's how business works. Well, according to Jan Weir, this is a big deal. 
because what is happening in retail and in other sectors of the economy are anything but normal. Many of the firms that I just talked about could have survived, according to Weir. But but firms like hedge funds, in some cases, made sure that the firms didn't survive. Jan Weir is a Canadian litigation attorney who lives in Toronto, and he has followed how financial firms, both in the United States and in Canada, like hedge funds and private equity firms, have inserted themselves into the economy and how they affect people from the choices that we have in the marketplace or lack thereof to your pension fund. It can also affect and has affected economic inequality. Now, we had a great conversation about how these firms are able to do this, how the media and politics ignores what's going on, and what, if any, can, anything can be done about it. Now, I know that this is not necessarily religion-related, but I think that this is an issue, every so often we do focus on issues that aren't directly church-related. And if you are a person of faith, this is an important issue because it has effects. It can um, have effects that even lead up to things like January 6th. And Jan will talk about the connections. So let's get ready to hear from Jan Weir. join me this morning um, in talking about this very important subject. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I'm glad that someone is taking interest in this because I think it is um, more important than than, uh, most people realize and the media is not giving it enough attention. Mm. Um, uh, Just this week, there's been a conference at Davos Mm -hmm. and I'm sure that your uh, audience probably doesn't have too many billionaires in it. Though they didn't get an invite as I didn't, and I'm sure you didn't. But yeah, mine was lost in the mail. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm sure, um, but the reports we get is that there was a group of these very wealthy people who warned the, uh, I guess, the majority there that economic inequality had reached such an extreme measure that there would be civil unrest. Well, not maybe civil unrest. There would be civil unrest unless this was problem was tackled. Um, so people of the, who have probably much greater insight in the economy than any of us are starting to recognize. And mm-hmm. I think U.S. is in the vanguard. You see all the signs now that's happening there because it's just not a fair distribution for the working class. Do you think some of the things that we're seeing, let's say, with um, kind of the opioid problem in, in parts of the United States, um, even things like January 6th, are outgrowths of, of kind of this inequality? Well, I think there's no doubt about it. It was a Washington Post that did um, an investigation 
into the financial affairs of the rioters in January 6th. And I think they found, I may not have the exact number, um, but it was at least 60% of them had public records of financial difficulties, hmm. being sued or declaring bankruptcy. So, yeah, definitely, these people, especially I think the white working class, uh, feel insecure now, financially insecure. And you remember um, that Florida uh, psychologist Maslow, he said, a hungry man cannot love. Mm-hmm. So I think that whatever else you might think of his theories, but I think that's true. So what's happening is within the white working class, there are hardcore racists, mm-hmm. but there are also people who are marginal, if you like, because I think racism is learned. I don't think that it's inherent. There are, there are marginal people, but they're becoming more racist or, or, or less open to the uh, the new understanding of racism uh, and in this prevalence and this un- yeah, unconscious racism that they close their mind to it because they're worried about their own financial situation and that mm-hmm. of their children. And so if we're going to solve that problem, we've got to deal with the economic inequality first and get them to calm down. And do you think... Yeah. Do you think that the how is the do you think the political system is handling this? How do you think the media is covering this? Do you think that there are the both of those are falling down on the job on this? Absolutely. You know, one of the reasons is the politicians understand no more about these issues. And we'll talk about Sears and how hedge funds take over these companies. They understand no these issues in the average voter. Mm-hmm. That's a serious problem. The only people who understand it are the people who are in the top echelon, and they're the ones who are advising the politicians in the background. We don't know. The politicians don't make this policy. They have their advisors, the lobbyists, and those people they are controlling the politicians, whether they're Democrat or Republican. Those people are controlling it. And the average voter doesn't understand it. The politicians don't know. Some of them believe that they're really making um, uh, good uh, policies, but they aren't. And one of the things on my my medium.com site, a theme on every uh, posting that I have is I show how the policy and the law that is promoted uh, to end economic inequality always has a loophole. Mm. And it never works. And it hasn't worked since 1970. We had, we had if you look at, um, would your audience know the Gini coefficient? Probably not, but this is a good way to learn. Okay. Um, anyway, the measure, the accepted measure by most economists is called the Gini coefficient. It has nothing to do with Aladdin and his lamp, unfortunately. <laughs> it's the name of this Italian dude who invented this way of measuring economic inequality. Now, it's very hard to find a graph that goes back uh, this far, but if you can find one that goes to 1930, you'll see there was economic inequality up to 1933. After 1933, with the reforms that were put in, uh, after the Great Depression, there was relative fair distribution of the wealth up until the 1970s. Then something happened. 
and it started to reverse again and go back like it was before 1900. And we're really at that point now where it's increasing so much that we're getting close to that level of, uh, of differential. Um, and so the, uh, the point is there was once, um, it, it can be done, there was once a set of policies that helped promote economic inequality. Now, listening to this as, a, as an African-American, you say, and, and you're right, I'm thinking in the back of your mind, you say, yeah, for whites. And that's true for whites, mm -hmm. but at least at least that could be done. Even even for whites now, it's not mm -hmm. done. No. So what we have to do is get the right policies so that everybody can share in the in the gross national product. Um, and, and, and those policies, um, well, we'll talk. Uh, um, I'd say there there are, are many, but. I think the only way to do it, you can't get, I was teaching at University of Toronto um, and uh, I would talk to the uh, academics there about this problem, but they don't understand it either because the only people that really understand it, and we're gonna see this with the series, are people in the system. Mm -hmm. You can't learn about this in a library. Yeah. Uh, and so you've got to talk to people who are like the lawyers, accountants, the wealth management people, the top bankers, people in the hedge funds, some of them are, are, are willing to talk about it. Um, you've got to get that. And the only way I see is, uh, is maybe to form some kind of study groups, get people who are interested and they want it and we develop a curriculum. That can, so we have the material and give it to instructors who would be interested in this and start courses for people. But without that background, this is going to continue. So kind of looking at the Sears story, mm -hmm. um, that involved a hedge fund. And I think before we go kind of into what happened with Sears, maybe the, the important thing here, because we need people need to understand some of this is, the basic question is, what is a hedge fund? Now, that is a good question. The one I, I like to show is, um, have you seen the movie Wall Street? seen parts of it yes okay actually it's it, that's a, a hedge fund okay. and that guy michael douglas plays who's famous for the quote greed is good mm -hmm. that's the ethics of the hedge fund and that's what a hedge fund guy does and that's actually based the the author was the son of a hedge fund manager so what he writes is accurate he saw the inside and in, in Wall Street, um, the Michael Douglas character, Gordon Gecko is his name. Gecko, by the way, is South African for lizard. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, so uh, Gordon Gecko takes apart a small airline company. It could have been saved, but he could make more money faster. That's actually based on what a hedge fund manager did, Carl Icahn did to TWA. He took it apart. It could have been saved, but he took it apart. And economist Larry Summers said that was a direct transfer of the paychecks from the employees at TWA into Carl Icahn's bank account. Hmm. And, and, and that's what hedge funds do. So if they want to see what a hedge fund does, they should watch that movie and understand okay. that's not limited. And the only thing that's wrong with that, and this is the Hollywood ending, the hedge fund guy went to jail. In reality, they don't go to jail. Hmm. 
and everything they do is, in fact, legal. Hmm. And that's the problem. That's a big problem. Yeah. So what is the story then of Sears? Because, you know, we the story that everyone hears, and I think I when I was talking to Warren Schulberg, we talked about this mm-hmm. too, is that Sears and Kmart basically didn't keep up with the times, that they were not, um, you know, they were not willing to kind of take on competitors like Amazon, and this is why they're ending up where they are. Now, that's part of the story, but it seems like that's not all the story. Um, so what did happen with Sears? Yeah. Um, yes, I read those retail analysis, and I'll leave it to them, but I'm going to put it this way. If um, you strip out all of the profits in dividends, okay, and in share buybacks mm-hmm. uh, every year, how can your company ever exist? Because they're always going to be, and you can tell me uh, the exact, um, um, I'm sure, chapter and verse of this, but there are always seven year, fat years and seven lean years. Mm-hmm. The business cycle is always going to go down. You've got to have some rainy day fund to be able to, uh, cover you when the business cycle goes down. Um, and uh, now I, I put this, I did three articles on my uh, medium.com site on it, uh, and I can't remember the, uh, the exact detail of it, but in terms of share buybacks, okay, um, let, me, let me explain um, a bit about this, because this, again, I would think the average person um, doesn't have um, much experience with buybacks unless you're a really wealthy investor. Um, so the, the problem with the share buyback when the hedge fund has control is they, um, it's, it's really ultimate insider trading. They don't buy back from you. You might have had shares in series, but they would not buy back from you they can buy back the executive shares. Okay? And they always jack up the price. And there's a ways of doing that, Fred, where they will, they will um, defer some expenses for that mm-hmm. quarter. So it looks like they're more profitable than they are. And it might be only a few dollars. But we're talking, I don't know if people understand, but there are multi-million shares in these public companies. There's not a hundred share company. So you can sell half a million shares and make uh, even a dollar extra. You've made half a million dollars. Hmm. You know, a small number multiplied by a big number, it's a big number. So they can jack it up. And so for that quarter, maybe another one, it's up a couple of dollars and then they'll go down a couple of dollars. Nobody notices, but they manipulate it. And there was a, um, uh, a, a member of the uh, Securities Exchange Commission a commissioner who resigned, but he had a study done. And, 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 and in the line, we're talking about uniting right and left. He is a conservative. It was a Trump appointment. Um, and he had a study done. And he said, yes, absolutely. These guys are jacking up the price before the, the buybacks. And they're getting their own shares bought, bought back. There's no way that the SAC can tell who's, um, who's and the head of the SEC, Mary Jo White, admitted that. 
We can't track it. So they're free. They can go to their broker. They get they get a um, resolution from the board of directors saying you can buy back a million shares. They go to their own, the CEO goes to their broker and says, here, you, I can use the corporate name. I can use the corporate funds. Buy my shares and my buddy executive shares back at this price. And it's done. But the average shareholder gets no benefit. Hmm. So that's that's the, the and that, maybe that's a little technical for people, but you can see how they start to cream off mm-hmm. money and make, they make nothing. So, so basically, in this, if I'm understanding, like with Sears, there was share buybacks because this was still when Sears was listed on the um, stock exchange. Yeah. And when you do that, then does that mean that there is less money to, let's say, fund pensions to? Um, update stores to you know come out with new strategies and all of that. Absolutely, because that's where the that's the the profit is going there, instead of to all of those business operational expenses and 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 the pensions. Yeah, exactly. So and that's just one of the ways that mm-hmm. they bring the money off. And so, how was how were they kind of able to do this? in some ways, out in the open. Obviously, you said it was legal. Yeah. But it seems like no one was able to challenge it or or was seemed powerless to challenge it. Maybe they knew what was going on, but they didn't have the means to really stop it, it seems. Well, they don't because the hedge fund had control of the company. They, they controlled the shareholders. They were the majority shareholders. They elected and put their own people in as the board of directors. Mm. And then eventually, Eddie Lampert, the the head of the hedge fund, put himself in as CEO. Mm-hmm. But the CEO has to do what they want anyway because they've got majority control. Mm-hmm. And they're all in on it. And the CEO, you probably see every year um, about the end of the year, December, the media talk about how the CEO pay is sometimes 300 to 1 worker. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason the CEO pay is that high and the shareholders don't care because these shareholders, the hedge fund people, only care that the CEO does their bidding. And as long as he does their bidding, they can have whatever salary they want. Mm. And that's why the shareholders have no control in CEO bid. So in one of your articles, you talk a little bit about how, well, actually in two of the articles, how this um, really wrecked pensions. Um, yes. With Sears especially, that I've you know heard about things happening, um, especially with the um, Pension Benefit and Guarantee um, Corporation, which is the U.S. body that kind of deals with pensions um, of companies that declare bankruptcy. How does the hedge fund really affect pensions um, in in corporations? And of course, we're talking about the the standard, the old tie, older older type of of conventional pension. Um, uh, which I believe is defined compensation instead of defined benefit, correct? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, and, and this is probably the key, the key point for people to understand. Um, and it's not just Sears where, where this is done. This is the, the modus operandi. This is part of the playbook that all hedge funds, well, I shouldn't say all hedge funds, but many hedge funds use in, in the way they basically loot the company, they underfund the pension. 
and, and this is incredible because you would think that, um, that there would be a sufficient, say, um, sufficient regulation to say that they can only invest in really blue chip safe investments. That regulation should be there. Mm-hmm. Apparently it's not because then what they do is they, they go into other types of investments which are riskier uh, and they say, oh, well, we were trying to get more money for the pension fund, but inevitably the pension is, fund is underfunded, but the executive pension fund is always well-funded. Hmm. So in every one of these bankruptcies, Toys R Us, et cetera, I give a list of them all, uh, not all, but a list of the recent ones at the time of the article, the pension workers' pension fund was always underfunded. And the and then, executive was funded. And, and then how does that affect the larger society? Um, well, well, then, then because it's underfunded, the state pension fund, or sometimes there's some federal pension funds, I leave it to you to go into that, but then the state pension fund has to pick up the deficiency. Mm-hmm. And first of all, they look to other businesses. These are, we'll call them honest businesses, who are paying the workers well, contributing well to the pension fund. Um, and uh, they have to make up the deficiency or the taxpayers have to. Or, as happened, I think, in Sears, the, the pensioners never got their full pension. Even with the supplements, they were still short. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's happening to it, hitting the working class. Mm-hmm. And it's hard when you're, you know that, that your parents must have been in this situation. Um, when you're um, uh, working class, uh, you've only got your pension. And if they cut a third of that off. That's hard. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's very difficult. You're going to have to make a choice between rent and food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I'm lucky. My parents were lucky that um, General Motors pensions were not cut. Um yeah. That was a I think that was a concern a few years ago when they when GM declared bankruptcy. But I think because of uh, I'm guessing because of of the union or negotiations and all that 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 didn't ever happen. But yeah. not a lot of people are that lucky. No, exactly, and 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 that's one of the the uh, I guess causes that's fueling this financial insecurity. Mm-hmm. Well, another thing that I see that hedge funds and, and private equity firms um, do this as well, um, and we'll get to private equity in a moment, but is something called a lease buyback. Um, yes. That happened at Sears. Uh, there was a corporate, uh, a separate entity, Sears was created, but I've seen it at other companies too where a, uh, you know, a, a hedge fund or a private equity firm will come in and all of a sudden they will basically do this lease buyback, which it sounds like it's, you know, going from the stores owning the property to then becoming renters of their own property, which seems a little hard to understand. Um, how would you kind of explain that to people? Well, you understood it properly. Okay. And it makes no financial sense for the benefit of the company. It only benefits the hedge fund. Mm-hmm. So, and what happened in Sears, and they get to cherry pick the best locations. 
because they know that the company is going to go bankrupt at some point in time because they're stripping out the money the way we've talked about and there are other ways we're going to talk about so that the company will not have enough money to survive. I mean, they, they know that at the beginning. It's just a question of how long they'll keep it the golden goose, you know, laying the eggs until they kill the goose when they've got enough out of it. And so part of the plan for the uh, making money on the bankruptcy, okay, and if you're wealthy, you can make money on bankruptcies. Well, you and I can't, but the wealthy people, and here's one of the ways they do it. They, they, they take the, the store, so they become the owner. Okay? And they may pay fair value, but they'll probably pay under market value for it. But in any event, they pay something for it. And then, as happened with Sears, Sears became a renter. Mm -hmm. okay? But then when Sears went bankrupt, they didn't own that store anymore, and they couldn't pay the rent. So the landlord, now the hedge fund, okay, through another company that it controls, can take possession of the property, which it did. Okay, and they're in the prime locations for redevelopment. So one of the Sears stores I mentioned in my um, article was um, in a prime place for the, um, the tech industry. So it was far more valuable as an office space for techies than it was as a retail space. So the hedge fund got that and uh, you know, took over the store, converted it, and now they have it and are landlords for the high-tech industry, making far more money. So that's how they took it from Sears. And they do that, again, that's one of the standard measures in the hedge fund playbook. Mm -hmm. So this also did something similar, at least with pensions, getting back to pensions for a moment, happened with Sears Canada. Um, yes. Because Sears, Canada, the Canadian um, division or, or, or Sears version in Canada also went through a lot of, of upheaval. And it seems like from what I read that the pension issue was also a very big issue. How did that affect um, um, Canadian the Canadian government or the Canadian uh, Canadian society. Yeah, well, um, yes, the same thing happened uh, in Canada because it, Sears Canada is a subsidiary of Sears US. So Sears US controls Sears Canada, and and they effectively did some of the same things. It's not so extreme, and we don't have that happening as much in Canada. Um, as you do in the States. Mm -hmm. uh, but we have it, and that's a warning, especially we have American hedge funds coming to Canada, and this is a whole other issue for Canadians, not relevant to you, but our, our, our laws are actually even more lax than yours. Really? Yes. Hmm. So in some ways, and I don't want to get into that because it's all very technical, it's Securities Commission, et cetera, and that, um, and that's a whole side issue one that... that I deal with in my class, uh, but but it's not relevant to your people. But uh, the hedge funds are waking up. Uh, the American hedge funds are waking up and seeing a lot of easy pickings in Canada. So mm -hmm. that will become a problem for us. That's for sure. And our uh, Securities Commission is not awake to it. No. Hmm. Yeah. So, what is how is a 
private equity fund different or, or are they similar in some ways from a hedge fund? Yeah, there really is no difference because there's no law that, that, that says you have to be one or the other. And both of them will do anything to make money. Now, an equity fund says we invest in, in, in the stock market terms, they're going long. We invest for long-term investments in a company. A hedge fund, though, is a piranha. A hedge fund hedges going short. And going short means we, we um, um, bet against a company's success. We want the company to fail. So there are ways, yes. So this is permitted, okay? Um, you saw the big short, the movie? I've not seen the movie, but I know the understanding of a short yeah. or yeah. trying to short a stock and all yeah. of that. Yeah, so about, just for your audience, that, uh, that, that there was um, an example of a, a totally, um, say, unproductive um, say financial transaction. The hedge funds bet with the banks about the housing market, whether it would go up or go down. So the bank said the housing market is always going to stay well and slightly go up. The hedge fund says, no, it's going to tank. Okay. So right away you see there's one of examples of what you're saying, pure extraction. What did that do for society? Nothing. Exactly. Okay. But the, the banks then put all of their assets, including depositor money, at risk. Because if they failed on that bet, okay, so this is a pure Las Vegas casino-style bet. If they failed on that bet, the hedge funds could grab all of the bank assets. So that's what happened in 2008. And has the media really explained that well? No. No. So why did the banks need the bailout? They needed the bailout to go to the hedge funds. So where did that money go? It went to the hedge funds to pay the bank's debts. Hmm. So why didn't the media pick that out? Well, that is the question. Why didn't they? Yeah. And there's still people don't know. Don't understand what happened. And they let these hedge funds and the banks continue to do that kind of betting. Mm -hmm. See, that's why Dodd-Frank is totally, most, I was going to say totally, mostly irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Mostly ruined. They didn't get at the real problem. Is it again because they didn't understand yes. the real Politicians problem? Politicians had no idea of just that. Hmm. And now your audience does, but I'll bet you're some of the few people in America that understand what really happened in 2008. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you said before, you know, there's the narrative and there's the facts. Mm-hmm. I've heard you say that. Yes. Well, you know what the narrative is? It's mm-hmm. not true. Yeah. Okay. It's not true. What you've been told, it's not true. Well, I guess the, the and no one can can see this, but the kind of look on my face, because I think thinking about a hedge fund, basically that they're basically, it sounds like their existence is to bet against a company just seems at odds with what I would think business is all about that business is all about trying, you have a product or you have a, a, a service or something, you are trying to sell it. Um, and 
make some some profit off of it, but you're not trying to basically tank a company so that you can basically, in essence, to short it, to bet against it so that you can make money. It just that seems to go against what I would believe how capitalism should work. Yeah. And then, of course, they justify it, saying, well, we're the hyenas. It's survival of the fittest. And like the hyenas who take down the weakest, we're taking down the weakest. We're exposing it. That's how they justify it. But are they taking down the weakest? Because Well, that's the problem. They aren't. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that's the point, yeah. Yeah, because I think people would say that, again, going back to Sears, that Sears was was weak, but they still had a fair number of stores. You know, they weren't doing as well as they once did, but they weren't basically on their on death's door either. And yeah, exactly. So- exactly. And that's that's the point, even with TWA. Mm-hmm. It wasn't on death's door. It could have been saved, but they can make more money by taking it apart than by working to 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 you know to to be good corporate doctors yeah and and that's the problem in their financial interest mm-hmm. and, and and i think the answer to this you know hyena capitalism is that no um that's the law of the jungle but mm-hmm. you know it's up to us as humans we we can impose fairness you know injustice that's what humans do mm-hmm. and we we modify and then take the edge off, if you like, the predatory parts of capitalism. Mm-hmm. And that's what our regulations should be doing, our laws should be doing. So one of the, I don't know if you've seen a move, um, this movie, I, I haven't seen all of it, but there's a, a clip that if you've seen it on, on YouTube, and it's, a, um, I believe the movie's name is Other People's Money. And it came out about 30 years ago. And the scene is between... Um, Danny DeVito, and I want to say Hal Holbrook, but it's not Hal Holbrook. Um, I'm already see. I see the actor's name. It's an older actor um, who's not uh, um, around anymore. But um, the scene, and maybe I will find it in a little bit. But the scene is that they are. He is basically kind. Of, Danny DeVito is kind of a person that is. He takes over companies and and sells them and it's a kind of a duel between him and and the owner of the company and the owner um talks about the fact that you know this person and he points at devito is doesn't make anything he doesn't do anything he just kind of basically takes other people's money and you know gives it to other things and that this company, which is not at this point doing well, things can turn around, things can change. Mm-hmm. DeVito comes in and basically says that he uses basically to the, the, the shareholders that it's really all about um, self-interest and that, you know, no, the workers, the everyone doesn't care about your money, but I do. I will take care of your money. I'll even help you to make more money. Um, and so it's an interesting thing, and the shareholders end up voting um, to sell the company. And it just is a kind of an interesting way of seeing these two models of capitalism. Um, one that is a producer um, uh, that wants to, is concerned about the, the workers, the company itself, the shareholders. He wants to have everyone benefit. 
And then this other person who is kind of buying a corporate raider that is seems more interested in trying to it, making sure that it's basically me, myself, and I, that I'm making the money. And it seems like in some ways that um, encapsulates what has been happening over the last few decades. Yes, exactly. You know, and I haven't seen that movie. I'm glad you told me about it. I'll look it up. Other People's Money is a good uh, allusion to a book written by Louis Brandeis uh, in oh, 1920s, I think he wrote it, before he was uh, appointed to the Supreme Court. Uh, and one of his, I guess, uh, focuses in his practice was litigating against the big banks. And he wrote this book to warn people of the danger of the big banks. And then, it, of course, it happened in 1930. But everything that Brandeis warned about came to fruition. And nobody did nothing about it until uh, the Depression. And then they woke up and said, hey, we got to do it. And so that's why they, um, they uh, legislated Glass-Steagall. Mm -hmm. So Glass-Steagall gave the Americans a fairly stable economy until 2008. Or, and I, well, it, actually, they, I, I shouldn't say. Uh, it was repealed in 1999, was, was I believe. In, um, under Clinton in, yeah. uh, when he was 1990s or so. Mm -hmm. Okay, but, but it had given a, a fairly stable economy until then. But then the Clinton repeal set the basis for the failure in 2008. Mm -hmm. And so instead of just reinstituting Glass-Steagall, they came up with this, Glass-Steagall was eight pages. They came up with a thousand page Dodd-Frank. And it is not as effective as Dodd-Steagall. You could take Dodd-Frank out tomorrow, put in Dodd-Steagall, and you'd have a far better set of legislation. But again, who understands it? And they can say, how? Can you read a thousand pages of legislation and tell me it's not effective? Well, actually, there are economists who have done it. And yes, mm -hmm. that's what they said. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. This tinkers with the system, but it doesn't fall, solve the problem. Mm -hmm. yeah. By the way, the other actor was Gregory Peck. That's who I was oh, thinking of. So yeah. it was probably, I think, one of his last last roles. Um, been, yeah. But so one of the other things in, in one of the other um, articles that you wrote um, was an interesting note about the state of Washington, and that they had, I believe, shares of, I want to say KKR, which is a private equity firm, mm -hmm. and they held it. They didn't sell it or say this is a problem. Um, and this was, I think, the state of, either the state of Washington or, or the, the state and, and, and unions or something like that, that it seems like they had a role to say, you know, this is not right, and kind of maybe either put a stop to it or sell what they have, and they didn't. Um, and at the time of this, it, this, this wasn't Washington, wasn't, you know, a red state, to put it in that way, in, in kind of an American term. This was, you know, it's a very democratic state, um, but yet they didn't seem to want to divest of these shares in KKR, 
Is it that they didn't understand or that they, they didn't want to understand? Um, yeah, I'd have to go back actually to look at that uh, detail, but I think the point that I was making was that that firm, was it KKR? I think it's KKR. Yeah, a head fund was doing these kinds of things, mm-hmm. um, but they were they were a pension fund and they were investing in it. Yes, that's that's what it was. Yeah, and they were they were investing in a hedge fund that was actually damaging workers' pension funds, mm-hmm. and that um, that has also happened with unions. They invest in these hedge funds, um, who then take apart companies and underfund unions. And the problem is the conflict of interest. See, the money managers for these programs want to make as much money for themselves, okay, and not necessarily for their members. Mm-hmm. See, that's the problem with money managers. And so they will invest, even though they're for a union pension, they invest in hedge funds that take apart companies and destroy union pensions because they, the money manager, makes a bigger commission because these hedge funds pay well. Hmm. And that's what unions should wake up and say, hey, no, they can't do this. And it seems like, from what I remember, the investments in some ways aren't even that great, that the returns compared to an index fund, and I think you talked about Warren Buffett, is far greater than investing in a hedge fund. Exactly. The unions should wake up. They should not be paying these money managers. And Warren Buffett has tried to tell them that. So he did a challenge. And he said, I challenge any money manager to beat an index fund. And he chose Vanguard. Okay, it's one of the biggest. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter. Their number of the good ones. Too. Yeah. Um, and, and he cho- only one dared to take up the challenge and lost. Because hmm. they can't do better than an index fund. I wonder if your audience understands index fund. Because, again, it's something that's not explained. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually, see... So what, what one, um, I guess, financial analyst realized was that stock markets in general always go up. If you try to pick a stock, you'll be lucky and you diversify because you don't want to have just all in one, all your eggs in one basket. So you diversify and you try and pick a number of stocks. You'll win on some, lose on some. And you might lose more than you win. There's no way of really knowing. Nobody can really um, uh, pick. Uh, when I say nobody, very few can do it. You know, as Warren Buffett says, if you're not reading financial statements six hours a day like me, you're an amateur. Okay? And if you're not doing that, you're not going to be able to pick like he does. And our money managers can't do that. Okay, So even if you have them, they can't do it. Um, so what one financial analyst said was, why not take a sample of all of the listings, all of the companies that are listed, for example, Standards and Poor's Index, all of the companies take, you know, 100 shares of each one. And so overall, the stock market goes up, so you're going to lose on some, but overall, you're going to win. So you don't have to have some guy reading financial statements and charging you commission for it. You just do it once, buy... I'm going to buy Standard & Poor's, or I'm going to buy whatever, NASDAQ. I'm going to, 
and they say they take you know 10% of whatever they can do. They pool your money with other people and they they take just as I said, a few of everyone, and then on average, you make money. And if you don't do that, you may be one of the lucky ones who maybe make money, but you may be one of the ones who lose money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you do an index fund, it's almost guaranteed. As long as the stock market goes up, you're okay. Mm. So you should not be paying money managers. So union pension fund, we are own investors, should not be paying money managers for that. We should always invest 90%. Buffett says, for us, you know, we mere humans, what about 80% in index funds and 20% in bonds? Mm -hmm. that's, that's what you should do. Um, and then you don't have to pay these money managers for this advice. Um, and you save on the commissions. Why do you think, you know, governments and unions don't really kind of follow up on what's happening? Is it that they, they don't know or that they don't want to know? Now, that's an interesting question, one I don't know, but I think they don't know. I mean, I looked into it at the University of Toronto, and they don't know. Nobody's actually, and I think that there's a kind of uh, inertia in the system. And the only way you get change done is you have enough people who understand it, and they raise some noise about it. But if you leave it to the bureaucrats that are in charge, you know, they just do their job mechanically and as long as they're getting their paycheck, you know, it's fine. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's the problem. So you, when we talked, started this conversation, we talked about how this can lead to inequality. Um, how does that happen? What, what happens, you know, one of the things I remember reading um, with Sears is, you know, and, and some even some other retail places, um, kind of legacy places, these were jobs that paid rather well. Um, you could have a, a fairly good living on these positions. And, you know, in the case of Sears, lots of people lost those jobs. Um, what effect does that have? I mean, do, do these people find jobs that pay comparatively to their last job, or did they end up basically in a worse position? Well, that's what happens, yeah. When they lose their jobs, they can't get another fair-paying job. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are many jobs added, and I saw a wonderful cartoon on the Internet, politician bragging, you know, we, we added 100,000 jobs this month, and there's a woman in a McDonald's uniform, she's saying, yeah, and I got three of them, and I mm -hmm. still can't make my rent. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So that's what's happening, yes. They're going from these, you know, fair-paying jobs. I can't say well-paying jobs, but there was enough for people to, to really be, live a comfortable life. And they're replaced with gig economy jobs. Are they going to drive for Uber? Hmm. Yeah. So then what can be done? What, how do we rein in some of this stuff? And... Well, you know, one of the things I think you, in one of the articles you talked about, not every, um, in this case, it would be private equity, does all of this. And I think you talked about one company that kind of turned around all of garden restaurants. How do you rein in kind of the, the bad parts of this so that it's not all basically just 
about extracting, but it's also maybe about building up a company. Well, um, and I can't remember if I've, I've said this already to you or I said this previously, so, but the first part, it has to come that people have to generally understand what's happening. And, and the media is not doing a good job. The colleges and universities don't deal with the subject at all. So the only thing I can think is that maybe people will form study groups to try uh, and educate uh, people. I can remember hearing somewhere back in the 70s saying, well, each one teach one, um, trying to get voting rights or so. I think we need to start some kind of a, a, a people's uh, grassroots campaign to, to make people aware of this. Because it doesn't matter, I can tell you solutions, but unless there's enough um, political will, which means that there's a, enough voters that are forcing the politicians to understand this, nothing's going to happen. So I think that's the, the first thing. Um, I write uh, you know, on medium.com, so if any uh, listeners are interested in these issues and um, want to get more, because it's hard to absorb all this from just listening, uh, you've mentioned my articles that are on uh, the website, and I continue to write about the, the different um, ways that economic inequality is being uh, made. Um, but I think that's the first thing. It's got to be education. Mm -hmm. And then as for the solutions, then, then you become a bit more obvious. Uh, don't allow um, them to underfund a pension. You can say, no, you can only uh, invest in blue chip or government bonds or something like, or, or uh, yeah, I would say government bonds. Because the interesting thing, if you track, and an accountant did this, if you track the same time period that uh, Warren Buffett used for uh, his uh, comparison, uh, you know, between the... Uh, the, the two methods of investment, government bonds it almost as well, hmm. with no risk. You know, so you should look at that and put in a rule, say, you know, you can only invest in, you know, highly secure investments. And if the pension is underfunded, then the bonuses and executive pay and the dividends are clawed back. Mm -hmm. And explain what clawed back means. I mean that you would go back probably five years and take enough away because you know where you are. The, the, the dividends went to the hedge funds. And mm -hmm. so you say to the hedge funds, you pay those dividends back. Okay. And you say to the executives who are taking these huge bonuses, you know, million dollar bonuses every year. No, those bonuses come back. And they fund that pension until it's well-funded. That's not too hard. No. Can you imagine anybody would, would object to that? Probably very few. Yeah, very few. But it's because the average voter doesn't know it. So we got right back to what I'm saying. Until we get some way of getting this information out to the voters mm -hmm. by way of education, it's not going to happen. Once we do that, the solutions become fairly obvious. Why do you think the media has not done a good job on this? Uh, you th like I said, I think um, 
there have been a few that have done some things. Um, I don't know if you're aware of McKay Coppins, who's a, a reporter for The Atlantic, um, did, I think, an excellent article on um, a hedge fund that is buying up um, newspapers across the United yes, States. I know that. Yeah. And, um, you know, but that's really one of the few examples of, of journalists that are really kind of digging into this. Um, other than that, you just don't see that that much. Why yeah. is that? Why? I mean, there are, we, we have journalists that follow the stock market that um, are business journalists, but yet they don't seem to pick up this issue. Yeah, um, and I wonder, I've, I've puzzled over this, and I wonder if it is because they too don't have the background they need uh, to really understand what's happening there. And uh, there was a paper that the uh, editor of the Financial Times, um, now I'm blanking on her name, but she wrote it for the, uh, the Bank of France, uh, to explain, because why did the reporters not know that the economy is in such bad shape in 2008? And these are specialists. These are the they, they were following the Wall Street. You know, um, these guys should have understood. And she says, actually, you know what? We really don't understand how it works. She admitted it. So even they don't know. So I think that a lot of them, so what we're talking about will be news to most of them. Yeah, I, I, I guess I wonder, you know, one of the things I sometimes hear with um, political journalists is that there's too often that they follow the, the horse race of, yes. between politicians, but not really the issues that are affecting um, and how the, the politicians will, may try to solve them. And I'm wondering if that's the same thing here, that in some cases, business journalists will follow, in this case, the horse race would be, you know, the stock market, um, whether it's Wall Street or um, whatever um, market it is, and that they follow you know, what's going up, what's going down, but they're not following what's happening behind all of that, um, that they're not really digging more into um, these deeper issues that affect the stock market, but you know, that's only part of the story. That's only the surface. I think you, you, you nailed it. That's exactly what's happening. Hmm. And they believe that they can't understand it because the, the, the kind of ideas... Now, if we go into the uh, 2008 crisis, which is a whole big issue by itself, um, well, just for example, what I showed you about the big short. Mm -hmm. They don't understand that. And they think that these financial instruments are so complicated, there's all this math, but it doesn't matter. That's a distraction. What they have to understand is that, you know, that was a pure bet. And that's where the, the, the bailout money went. It's not too hard to understand. Mm -hmm. okay, but, they, but, but nobody's explained that to them. No, because I didn't see that. In that way, I just saw that it was the bailout because the bank had made bad decisions, which technically, yes, they had, but yeah. we didn't know where those bad decisions were ending up. Um, yeah, or, or 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 that they shouldn't be allowed to make that kind of a decision. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Other people's money. That's what. Mm -hmm. That's where that title comes from. Mm -hmm. Other, and, and that's what Brandeis has said. These bankers are using your money 
other people's money, your deposit money, and you're doing all this risky stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and they were doing it then, they're doing it now. Dodd-Frank did nothing to stop it. Glass-Spiegel did. Do you ever see any type of efforts to reinstate Glass-Spiegel? Oh, there are a lot of people advocating for it, but they're in the boondocks, if you like. Hardly anybody's really paying attention to them, and they probably sound like weirdos or something, or these uh, you know, radicals or whatever. But yeah, there are a lot of there are a lot of groups that are talking about it. I think mostly on the left, so people moderates and people on the right are not paying attention. But it's an it's an issue that should unite the right and the left. Mm-hmm. The simple thing, and it gets a little bit more complicated about um, uh, Glass-Steagall, but in, in essence, was this Glass-Steagall said that the, the investment banks, who are the ones who usually do this kind of, you know, pure betting, mm-hmm. okay, were separate from the commercial banks. And commercial banks are prohibited from doing any kind of investing like this. So and Glass-Steagall basically took that wall down. They put the wall down, but also prohibited the commercial banks from doing that kind of investing because mm-hmm. they had the deposit money. The investment banks could do it with the wall down, if you like. So if they lost the investment banks, but they could not get at the assets of the commercial banks. Mm-hmm. So the idea originally was you should have the three main parts of your financial system. You have commercial banks, investment banks and insurance companies, they should be in three watertight compartments like an ocean liner because their business cycles are different. One will be up, one will be down at the other time. But so if one goes down, the other two will be up. And that gives you some stability. That was Glass-Steagall. But what happened under under uh, uh, Clinton with, uh, what was it? I can't pronounce it, and Graham... Leach Liley or something, some very difficult name to pronounce, but anyway, they took away all three barriers. Mm. And then, of course, they all collapsed because even the insurance company, AIG, got involved. They're the biggest insurance company in the world, got involved in this whole betting. They insured the bets, too, so they bet against the hedge funds as well. And, and some of the banks, they, all, they were all mixed up in this. And so the insurance companies should be prohibited like they once were from doing that kind of investing. The commercial banks should be prohibited from doing that kind of investing. Let the investment banks do it. Okay, then they can't pull down the other two. But there they pulled down the other two. And by the way, you see, that's why Canada didn't need a bailout because we kept those three sections. Mm-hmm. We didn't allow the, the 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 barriers to be taken down. Okay, that explains because I think one of the people everyone noticed is that this was happening worldwide. Yeah, but Canada was the exception. It seemed that this wasn't happening. Yeah, yeah, because we kept the three barriers. And isn't it that simple? Mm-hmm. If you understand it, you know the solution. You don't have to have an advanced degree in mathematics to understand that. Yeah. So why do you think that the they decided to take down those walls? Was it, you know, did they not have any foreknowledge that this could happen or? Well, I don't, I don't think it was just greed. It, it was Citibank. I think that um, uh, 
they, they just acquired traveler's insurance in violation of, of um, Glass-Spiegel. Mm-hmm. And, and the Clinton government did nothing about it. And then he was convinced by his advisors, who are Wall Street people, that this was a good thing and he should allow it to happen and it'll strengthen our economy and our banks will be the best banks in the world. So he bought it because he listened to Wall Street. Hmm. So we should not have Wall Street. And they always say, well, the best people to advise about Wall Street are people from Wall Street. They're the worst. You should never have a person from Wall Street in the Treasury Department okay, or advising anybody on the government. There are lots of people who understand Wall Street and will give you, you know, uh, I'm going to say a patriotic advice, will put the welfare of their fellow citizens above their bank account. But not a single person from Wall Street will ever do that. They will never do that. They will put Wall Street first, and you will suffer. This Was it a problem, then, to have people like um, Stephen Geithner and, um, and I'm sorry, um, Tim Geithner and, and Steve Mnuchin as, as Treasury secretaries because of their prior role um, in Wall Street? Yeah, well, actually, t- um, Mnuchin, of course, uh, was a... Um, ex-Goldman Sachs guy, mm-hmm. and he was known as Mr. Foreclosure King. Um, and that, that that's another, th- uh, you know, kind of issue, side issue, that I deal with in, in uh, on my media site. Tim Geithner is, uh, came from um, the, the New York Fed. So he was always a civil servant. Okay, okay. But the, but the problem with Tim Geithner is that then he was paving his way for a, his job career mm-hmm. because after he left, he got, uh, um, he was made the uh, president of a private German bank. Um, and I'm going to forget their name right now. Something, there's a joke and I'm going to get the name wrong about it. Uh, something pinkish, but uh, in any event, you know, it's on the website. You'll see where he is, but yeah, he, he, he it, this is the, the problem. So even if they haven't come from wall street, they can go to Wall Street. So the solution is, if you're going to be in one of those senior positions in government, you're well paid, you have a good pension, then you have to make a commitment that you're never going to go to the people you regulated. You can go to a university, go to a think tank, you can join the UN, they can, you know, advise foreign government departments. You get there's a whole range of things that you can do. Okay? But you can't go to the people you're regulating because that what you're doing is you're basically feathering your own nest for your future career. So that's what Geisner did, undoubtedly. Yeah. Hmm. So where do you see, kind of wrapping this up, where do you see all of this heading in, in the next few years? Um, you know, we started this talking about concerns about political unrest, and um, we've kind of seen some of that happening. Where do you think things are going to, what do you think how things are going to happen in the next few years? Will there be change in world capitals like Washington or Ottawa, or will we see more unrest? No, I don't see a hope for change because of the reasons we've been talking about. Not enough people understand. The politicians don't understand. And the, 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 the people who are um, advising they are in 
the class that benefit from this upward transfer of wealth. Mm -hmm. yeah. So down, how do we get this word out? That's, that's so the question is seems to be the answer right now has to be education. Absolutely. Yeah, until it's not that hard to understand, although it's it's um what well, um, there's a, a woman who uh, uh, follows my uh, uh, postings, um, and she's teaches in the social justice movement, so she's highly influenced. And she's the head of the uh, Grantland Johnston Institute for Leadership Training. So she's um, I don't know if you know of that name, but uh, he died recently. But he was a, a leader in the African American civil liberties movement in California. Anyway, so anyway, she says to me, I read your articles about three times and my head hurts. <laughs> well, yeah, I agree. It's it's not always easy to understand. I think I have to read it a few times to 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 get it. Um, and it in some ways it's kind of good because I kept thinking I that I'm not the only one that, that has a hard time trying to figure this out. Um, but that's also not great because that means only if the people who are doing this are the people that understand it. Yeah, but it, but I think, you know, it shows, a, you know, the learning theorists tell us when you come to a new subject, you have to, first of all, learn, like if you go to a new shopping mall the first time, okay, you're totally dazed and you're gonna, you keep going back and keep going back, keep going back. And then you can focus on finding individual stores. It all comes in into focus. Mm -hmm. And that's the same with a new topic like this, because you're not taught this in schools. You have no background for it. So it's like uh, maybe uh, explaining algebra and you've never had an algebra course. Right? Or teaching algebra and you've never had you know, arithmetic. Mm -hmm. you know, and and that's, that's the problem. So it's a way of how can we get this out to people and in a way that they can uh, absorb it and understand it. Yeah. So um, one of the things, I hope that some people will follow me on Medium. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I'm trying to write, uh, I see that I've put too much in my postings before. It was information overload. So on my new ones, I'm going to make them shorter and I'm going to do it with only one topic. So it should be a lot easier to follow. Okay. Well, I think that that would be helpful for people. Um, and I, we will make sure to have the, your, um, art, the, the, um, sorry, the URL for your articles on medium in our show notes. Um, oh, so hopefully people will, will read those articles because I think that they are important and help people to understand. Um, but I just wanted to say thank you for taking the time um, to chat with me that I think that this is um, this is an important issue and it's something that people need to understand. I, I'm hoping that this um, time has helped people kind of get an understanding of what's going on um, and maybe to make a difference down the road. Yes, well, yeah, and thanks because uh, I think you're one of the few people that are actually uh, picking up on this issue. Uh, so what you're doing is important. Well, thank you. And I hope that we can talk again on um, this issue and hopefully to see what updates may be happening. Well, my next one that I've got in draft right now is on housing prices. Ah, that's an important one. So yeah. um, 
And before I forget, there are actually some things that are happening, what I would say on the center right, that I will also put in the show notes and hopefully that you will see um, that I think that this is becoming a bipartisan issue. Um, and I hope down the road that this will lead to something. Yes, and I hope, I mean, people who read my articles uh, think that I'm writing from the left, but I'm trying to be uh, uh, bipartisan. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, as I did when I talked about the SEC study, I quote people from the right, but they don't seem to understand, uh, 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 you know, that there are a number of people on the right who are really concerned about this issue. Yes. There are. Mm -hmm. There are. And very yeah. knowledgeable, very knowledgeable people. Well, again, thank you. And um, we will talk soon. So yeah, take care. Okay, okay right. thanks again. <laughs>